Hello, parishioners. God bless you guys. Last week, I introduced this Sustain campaign. This is the one time a year that we uh, uh, go to you and ask for support to help support the ministry of Woodland Hills Church. It's one of the main ways we're able to keep offering our sermon resources and stuff for free. And so we really thank you for, for considering this. Thank you for all who have gotten on board so far. We have had, uh, we're over half the way to our goal of, of having uh, 375 people uh, signed up for this. Um, so it's also really encouraging encouragement to hear from all of you. And we love the photos and videos that you send to us. So, so, so keep them coming. You are a good looking crowd. Let me tell you that. Uh, if you haven't jumped on board yet, the idea is really simple. Uh, you just go to whchurch.org and, and uh, sign up for a regular giving schedule uh, of any amount. We have a, uh, a family here at Woodland Hills Church that has set up a matching fund. So for every donation, we'll receive an extra $50. So your donation will come for $50 more than, than, uh, than you gave. Uh, also, you'll receive one of our world-famous, world-class, beautiful, very creative Podrishner t-shirts. Uh, and uh, that's, well, that's worth it right there. I, mean, I know a few people have been collecting these things since the start. And they got quite a collection going. So as I mentioned on last week's podcast, um, this campaign is one of the biggest reasons that uh, we're able to keep on offering these things for free. But I already said that, so I don't need to repeat myself there. So thanks for considering being a part of this sustained campaign. Uh, really appreciate it. Just go to whchurch.org. And now for the final installment of the Cross-Centered series, where we're looking at how to interpret the Old Testament violent portraits of God in a way that bear witness to the cross. Here you go, yours truly. God bless you guys. Hello, Woodland Hills. Yeah, so we thought it'd be good to end the series. Uh, as I've shared each time here, uh, this is, what I'm giving here is not our church doctrine or anything like that. I'm giving my uh, way of solving a particular problem. I'll talk to Sam more about that in a second. Uh, but since it's just me sharing my opinion, we thought it'd be good to bring in some other opinions. I have no idea what Bruxy is going to think about this. Um, I, I, I sent him the, the popular version of the book. And uh, just said, would you come down here and just tell us what you think about this? I, I really don't know what he's going to think. If he's smart, he'll agree with me, but he's not always smart. So <laughs> I, I, I love my little uh, chubby hippie friend. We were just playing jokes on each other. He, he, he was over at, at uh, um, uh, Messiah College uh, two weeks ago, and I was there last week. And I got a word that he had told all the students at the end of my message to come up and say, you did good, but Bruxy was better. So what I did, <laughs> since I knew that, I had the whole crowd there. I, I, I got them on video saying, you're all right, Bruxy, but Greg was better. And I got on video, and then I tweeted it. So <laughs> anyways, it, it'll be good to have him down. And then we'll have this uh, Q&A time with him and Dennis. It's, it, it's going to be a, a good time. So the, the issue that we're wrestling with is this. Uh, we've got from a number of different passages, but most importantly from Jesus himself, that all of Scripture is about him. Ultimately, it's all about him. And more particularly, it's about him and sacrificial death on the cross because the cross just summarizes and culminates everything he's about. So all Scripture is to be interpreted in a way that leads us to, points us to, bears witness to uh, the cross, the revelation of God on the cross. Now, the problem is that some of the pictures of God that we have in the Old Testament don't clearly point to the cross. In fact, it's not clear how they're even compatible with the God revealed on the cross. And we're just being honest here. If you're visiting here and you've never been before, A, I would encourage you to hear the previous two sermons uh, leading up to this, and B, uh, be ready to be surprised. I, I hope I didn't cause anybody to question everything. You still believe in God, don't you? Uh, but we are kind of, this is some heady stuff here. We're wrestling with our, and we think it's good to, we worship God with our mind when we're thinking, because that's what the mind does. And so it's okay to think. And so get to wrestle with stuff. 
and, and struggle with stuff. You know, all the heroes of faith in the Bible struggle with, with, with God. They, they, they are out loud about their questions. Sometimes they're just complaining to God. Job, man, he says some nasty stuff about God. But in the end, God, God affirms him for talking straight, for, for you know, saying it from the gut. So we're just being out loud here. Some of those portraits, honestly, don't look anything like the God revealed on the cross. And so what we're asking is, but we believe that the whole Bible is inspired, fully inspired, um, divinely inspired. And so the question is, how does a portrait say of God? God commanding genocide, telling Moses to tell the people to wipe out everybody. Don't spare anyone. And if, if you spare anyone, then I'm going to come after you. Uh, show no mercy. Slaughter every man, woman, child, infant, and even the animals in certain regions. Exterminate that population group. Erase them from memory, which you find 37 times in the Old Testament. How does a portrait of God like that point towards, bears witness to, the nonviolent, enemy-embracing, self-sacrificial love of God revealed on the cross? That's the question that we're dealing with here. And it's a big one. It's a big one. Uh, and I'm sharing, sharing my opinion on how this can be resolved. Um, and, and if it lands, then let it land. If it doesn't, find something better. But I love it when it lands. Uh, there's, there's a lady two weeks ago came up after the service, and uh, she said, you know, I've all my life I've tried to believe, really tried to believe that God's altogether beautiful, like you're always teaching. He's as beautiful as he's revealed to be on the cross, that the cross defines God to his very essence. I want to believe that. But she goes, I've never been able to fully give my heart to him. And then she gave this an interesting analogy. She says, it's, it's, like, it's like if you're dating somebody, you know, and, and, and this guy seems like he's just be the, he gives you every reason to believe that he'd be the best husband in the world. And he just love and who he is. But it'd be like, what if you learned that at some time in the past he slaughtered a schoolroom full of children? Uh, that would really dampen your excitement for him. And I, I couldn't, the fact that he was capable of that under any circumstances, would be a, a, a deal breaker. I, I, I couldn't fully trust him. Well, that's how it is with God, she said. I've always wanted to believe that in, in Jesus, he seems so lovely, and, and I, I fall in love with him. But then I hear all the stuff that he said, that, that he supposedly did, and, and slaughtering the people and orchestrating rapes and parents cannibalizing children, all those terrible, terrible things. And I, I just have been unable to fully give him my heart. But then she started crying. And... Um, and she goes, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He did, I don't have to think he did that. And he's always been like Jesus, and now I can trust him and totally give myself to him. However you get there, that's the there you want to get, right? You want to get to that spot where you can fully trust that God looks as beautiful as he's revealed to be in Jesus Christ. But now we got to wrestle with this, this you know, uh, thing, how do the portraits reveal God? I, I went back to the early church, which the early church wrestled with this issue a lot, up to the first, th through for the first four centuries. It wasn't until the church got okay with violence that they stopped wrestling with these violent portraits of God, because now they wanted them to be violent, because they needed some, something to justify their violence. But if you go before that, theologians were struggling with nonviolent ways of interpreting these portraits, ways that would show how they're consistent with, consistent with and bear witness to that God has revealed on the cross. And see, the thing is this. Paul says that all of the wisdom of God is in Christ and is manifested on the cross. All the treasures of God's wisdom, Colossians 2, all of it's found in the cross. And so I, I've just made it my policy that whenever I'm seeking God's wisdom, I'm going to start and end with the cross. Uh, 
the cross is going to answer every question I've got about God. And so I, I, I asked that question while I'm staring at the cross. This happened to me 10 years ago. When I finally decided to really trust that God looked like Jesus Christ, which meant I stopped trying to defend the behavior of God in the Old Testament. I, had, I actually started a book where I was trying to justify that behavior. Here's the 10 reasons why God had to engage in genocide. And the nine reasons why he said, kill everyone except save the virgins for yourself uh, and enjoy them as spoils of war in Deuteronomy 22. Uh, and I was trying to defend it. And I finally got to the point where I said, I can't defend it. My, 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 my arguments didn't work. And it was when I stopped trying to defend it and fully trust that God looks like he does on, on the cross that that's when I began to see how these portraits, some of them hideously ugly portraits, how they actually bear witness to the cross. What I noticed was this, is that uh, when God reveals himself on the cross, it's not, it's not the surface that reveals God. Believers and non-believers see the same thing on the surface. It's, it's an ugly surface. It's hideous. Because the, the ugliness reflects the ugliness of the sin that God is bearing. But what reveals God to us who believe is that we by faith look through the cross and we see God, the all-holy God, stooping an infinite distance to become our sin. And it's the unsurpassable distance that God crosses that reveals the unsurpassable perfection of our love. We see it by faith. Unbelievers can't see that. They just see a crucified criminal. So it's not what's on the surface that reveals God. It's what we by faith know is going on behind the scenes that you can't see. And so since that reveals what God's always been like, including when he breathed the Bible... And since he breathed the Bible, inspired the Bible for the purpose of, of pointing to the cross, maybe we should read the Bible looking for God to reveal himself the same way, the same way he does on the cross. Maybe there'll be pictures of God that are ugly. And, we, and when we come upon this ugliness, since we trust that God is not ugly, when we come upon this ugliness, we know that something else is going on. And that the ugliness reflects not on who God is, but on who his people are and what they think about him. And God bears that sin. And what reveals God to us in these ugly pictures is not the surface, but it's what we know is going on behind the scenes. That our God's always been a stooping God, a heavenly missionary who will stoop as low as he needs to in order to stay in relationship with people, to enter into solidarity with people, and to continue to further his purposes through people. And and he's a non-coercive God. He doesn't manipulate. And and so uh, uh, he, he, he influences people as much as possible in the direction of truth. But then he accommodates people's sin as much as necessary. And then he takes on an appearance that reflects that accommodation. And so last week we saw a number of scriptures. And I just can, on all three of these messages, I'm just scratching the surface. Uh, I encourage you to get the book. This is just giving you a little snippet. Uh, consider that all three of these messages to be like infomercials for the book. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but uh, uh, there's a multitude of scriptures that, that, that confirm this. By showing us that God's always accommodating throughout Scripture. Hardly ever do we get God's ideal. What we get is God accommodating his ideal to the real. Because God always just deals with the real. Amen? And so, so if, if, if his ideal, plan A, isn't possible, he goes to a plan B. And if that's not possible, he goes to a plan C. And at each accommodation, he takes on the appearance of a God who, who looks like that. Uh, he doesn't just accommodate sin. He looks like he's the one who does sin. He, you know, it's, it reminds me of this. Jesus, in his ministry, you know, he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and the worst of sinners. He was in solidarity with them. And you know what? It got him in trouble. Because birds of a feather flock together, right? Uh, he looks like, he, he, since he's not always going around pointing out people's sin, it looks like he condones sin. And that's what the, the Pharisees said about him. Oh, look, he's a womanizer and a drunkard and all that stuff. Because look who he hangs out with. Well, Jesus reveals exactly what God is like. And God's always been this way. He hangs out with sinners, and thank God for that. Otherwise, we'd be very lonely. 
he, he, he stoops to where we're at, comes down to our level. And so he takes on an appearance that reflects that. And we saw there's a multitude of scriptures that say things like, you know, to the pure, God appears pure, but to the twisted, he appears twisted. How you see God says at least as much about you as it does God. And what you hear from God says as much about you as it does God. And that, since God will never coerce, that's what we find in scripture. We find true reflections of God, but we also find a lot of things that don't come from God. They come from people, and that God's willing to bear their sin. And, uh, and in this way, these violent pictures of God are testimonies that God has always been doing what he does on the cross. They're testimonies that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We, as we look back there, knowing God's true character, we, we should be able to see, in my opinion, that, oh, look, God, God's doing what he did on the cross. He's ugly. Uh, he's, he's doing just what he did on the cross. He's bearing sin. But we, by faith, can look through that surface, that hideous surface, and we see the stooping God. The surface doesn't tell us much about God's character because we know God's character as he's revealed in Christ. If you see me, you see the Father. Lock that in. Jesus said it. No one in the Old Testament ever said that, but Jesus said it. And so if we're trusting that, then when we find something that looks different from that, we look through it, and we see Jesus doing the same thing there as he did on the cross, bearing people's sin. Now, when I say this, I am not at all denying that the judgments that the Bible records occurred. I'm not denying those judgments. Uh, I take the whole Bible to be inspired, and those judgments happened. Uh, the question is, how does God judge? That's the issue. How does, it's not whether or not God judges sin and, and, and comes against evil. He'd be evil if he didn't do that. He hates everything that harms people, and sin harms people. But uh, it's, not, it's not whether he judges, it's how he judges. And see, the folks of the Old Testament... Where they were at is where everyone else in the ancient Near East was at. And that is, they assumed that when God comes against foes and God judges sin or wrongdoing, he, 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 he resorts to violence. In fact, they believed that, and you can see this in all the writings, that, they are, that they're actually praising God when they credit violence to him. The way you exalt God is by making your God look ferocious. And it's like they had a contest. Our God's more ferocious than your God because our God ate up all your warriors. And, and they brag on God's ferociousness. And so they ascribe this gross violence to him. And the, the authors of the Old Testament are influenced by their culture. And that's what they do. That's the sin that God has to bear. Uh, in fact, throughout history, including, sadly, most church history, people have assumed that if God is going to judge sin, he's got to resort to violence. Because that's, that's what human rulers do. If, if a human ruler is going to crack down on, on wrongdoers, they resort to violence. Well, so God must do the same thing. I remember as I shared last week or the week before, you know, in Psalms 50, God says, you always think that I'm just like you. And that's where we go wrong. If the cross reveals anything, it's that God is not just like us. If the cross reveals anything, it reveals that he's not at all like the God that we, the kind of gods we expect to exist. Uh, and so instead of assuming that we know ahead of time how God judges sin, we ought to go back to the cross, which is, contains all the wisdom of God. And let, let, let God teach us how he judges sin. The cross is a judgment on all the sin of the world. Jesus stood in our place as a sinner and bore the death consequences that are inherent in all sin. And that's the judgment of God. That's the, the wrath of God. It's when, when you suffer the consequences of your sin. And, and it was very violent. The cross is a violent judgment of God. You look at Jesus and what you're seeing is man, a tremendous amount of violence. And he was beaten and crucified. It was a violent judgment of God. And yet, as I, as I stared at that cross saying, teach me, teach me, teach me, I guess it was nine years ago or so, I all of a sudden realized that God wasn't the one who was violent. 
A lot of violence in that judgment, but none of it was done by God. All the violence that was done to Jesus was done by humans operating on their own free volition, and they were under the influence of powers, principalities and powers. And they're the ones who engaged in violence towards Jesus, and that was the death consequences of the sin of the world. And since we're, we're uh, 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 to read it, the whole Bible through the lens of the cross, we should read it knowing that. The only thing God did when Jesus came under judgment is he allowed it to happen. He, he, delivered, he withdrew protection from Jesus and let Jesus suffer the violence that was in other people's hearts and that was in the heart of the principalities and powers. So we read uh, phrases like this uh, in Romans. Uh, he says, he who did not spare his son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not freely give us all things? He delivered him over. That's all he did. He delivered him over to violent people and principalities and powers, and Jesus suffered accordingly. Or Romans 4 talks about Jesus being delivered over for our transgressions. And you find this phrase used a lot. He was delivered over. That's the only action that the Father took with regard to Jesus. He didn't lift a finger towards Jesus. That was all done by other principalities and powers. And this is why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's standing on the inside of our sin and on the inside of our curse. And to be cursed simply means that you're separated from God. You're alienated from God. So he's, he's, he's suffering that. But it shows you the one thing that God did. He withdrew. He withdrew. Now Jesus is on his own and he suffers the consequences for the sins of the world. So when we read the Bible, knowing that you know, the, the, this is what the wisdom of God does, we should know that God doesn't have to resort to violence when he judges sinners. There is a terrible judgment that people fall under. But it's not God who brings about the terribleness. It's God who allows it. Now, one might think here that, that, that God's still responsible. It's like, well, listen, if, if God withdraws and leaves a person or a people group on their own, and knows that others are going to inflict violence on them the way they did on Jesus, well, then isn't he still responsible for it? Maybe it's like, uh, you know, God holding a pit bull. The pit bull wants to bite you. And I know the pit bull wants to bite you, but I let the pit bull go, and the pit bull bites you. Well, then, clearly, it'd be wrong for me to say, hey, I didn't bite you. It was my pit bull. No, I, I'd be responsible. Is that what's going on when God withdraws? And the answer is no. Think of it like this. Um, it, it, some of you, I know, have had loved ones, and maybe you yourself have been in the spot where you, that have been addicted to some kind of substance thing. And, and, and you, you intervene in their life, and you try to help them and prevent, keep them from getting arrested, and you pick up the mess, and, 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 and trying to spare them the pain of the decisions they're making. But there could come a point where you're enabling them, right? And, and, and at some point, you're actually harming them by trying to help them. And what you've got to do is let them fall. You've got to withdraw. And it's painful to watch. I've been in this situation. I've got to let you go. And you're going to make a mess of your life. And, and, and you're going to have to hit bottom. But it's the only way. I hope you learn this. It's the only way you're going to get off this stuff. That's kind of what God does. Uh, you know, sin is a matter of pushing God away at his heart. Sin is saying, leave me alone. Uh, and, and since God is life, to push God away is to choose death. And there's a lot of verses that say that. They who reject me love death, says in Proverbs 8. Uh, so it's choosing death. But God in his mercy stays involved to protect us from the consequences of our sin. And, and he does it to give us space to turn, to repent, to learn. Hopefully learn without the pain. But there can come a point where God can see that he's just enabling us. He's just letting us get deeper and deeper. Uh, we, we interpret uh, the, this, uh, his protection as though there are no consequences for sin. 
Like again, Psalms 50 says, when you did these things and I was silent, you thought I was just like you, that I was okay with it. I'm not. So also, you, you think that I'm okay with this and you're just getting deeper and deeper in it. I gotta, I gotta let you go. I, I gotta let you fall. And he does it with a grieving heart and with a hope that we'll get it the hard way where we couldn't get the merciful way. But he's got no other choice. There are circumstances where God has no other choice but to withdraw and let us suffer the consequences of our sin. That's how God judges. That's how God judges, um, in, in my opinion. Now, when, when I read, we read the Bible with that knowledge, um, here's what I found. That, yes, the, the Old Testament authors often attribute violence directly to God. God did it, God did it, God did it, God did it. But if you read their narratives knowing that God didn't do it, their own narratives will tell you that God didn't actually do it. Their own narratives often, almost always, will they portray God as being violent, but they'll indicate that the violence was actually carried out by someone else. I call this the scripture's dual way of speaking. That the authors portray God as doing what they themselves make clear he merely allowed. Okay, so for example, I could give you literally 84 pages of examples. That's what I have in the academic book. I'm going to give you just two examples. And you'll have to trust me for the rest or check it out. Like I said, this is one big infomercial, so there you go. Uh, look at uh, Exodus 12. In, in verse 12 it says, the, the, he portrays Yahweh as saying, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. It looks here, does it not, that Yahweh is going to personally come down and slaughter the babies. Human and animals. Because that's what he says. I will strike them down. Now, Already, because I know God. I know God like I know my wife. I know God in Jesus Christ, and he's not a baby killer. So I know that something else is going on here. And if you read the Bible knowing that something else is going on when God's portrayed ugly, you'll find out what's going on. 11 verses later, we get this. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Turns out Yahweh didn't personally kill all these children. There's this beast called the destroyer. And the destroyer apparently is, verse assumes, he's, he's always wanting to enter houses and strike down children. In fact, he's, he comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan is called the destroyer in the New Testament, Revelation 9. He comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And so he's always trying to, he's biting at the bit. Kill whoever he can. Yahweh holds him at bay. The death consequences of our sin involve us being surrendered over to him. And he would devour all of us. But he, Yahweh holds him at bay. But there comes times, and this is one of them, when Yahweh withdraws that protection and Satan does what he wants to do. God's not making him do it. He just is that way. And this is the, how, how judgments come. Now God, because he enters in solidarity with people where they're at, uh, he, he wears this tag. The author clearly thought, the author clearly uh, couldn't clearly distinguish between God and Satan. Because he has Yahweh doing it, then he has Satan doing it. And that's, you see that a lot in the Old Testament. They just weren't that clear about things. And so it didn't make any difference to him whether you say Yahweh or whether you say Satan, but it makes a big difference to us. Because we know what God's really, really like. So God stoops down and meets this person where they're at, and he wears that. But then the Holy Spirit breaks through and gives us a better indication of who actually killed the kids, and it wasn't Jesus. 
Nothing in the life of Jesus would suggest he's capable of such a thing. The author of Hebrews doesn't even mention Yahweh in this. He says, uh, uh, he's talking about Moses. He says, by faith Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Uh, it was the destroyer who did it, and now all the tension is on him. Uh, this is what you find all over the place, this dual way of speaking. God did it? Oh, no, he just allowed it. God did it? He just allowed it. Sometimes you find it in the same verse. In fact, a lot of times, over 50 times in Jeremiah, uh, and, and, and about a dozen times in Ezekiel, you find that the author says that God did it, and then he makes it clear that God didn't do it, whether in the same passage or somewhere else. And, and in fact, sometimes it's in the same sentence. For example, in Ezekiel 21. It says this, I will pour out my wrath on you and breathe out my, fire, my fiery anger uh, against you. This is a typical ancient Near Eastern picture of the warrior God. Uh, and whenever the New Old Testament authors depict God in violent terms, that's where God, mo- that's where they look the, the, the most like every, everyone that surrounds them. Uh, in fact, authors sometimes take the hymns that were sung to their gods, the violent hymns, and, 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 uh, and they just apply to Yahweh. They trade out Baal or whatever God it was sung to, and they put in Yahweh. This is where they reflect their most cultural conditioning. Whereas when they portray God in Christ-like ways, that's, they, they differ radically from all the other nations. So here we get a picture of Yahweh as this ancient Eastern warrior deity who's a fire, fire-breathing dragon. I'm going to breathe out my fire on you. And you get this picture that Yahweh's going to personally incinerate everybody. But look at the next phrase. And here, I, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like, you know, Ezekiel says that, and, and, and so the Holy Spirit breaks through and says, here's what he meant to say. Because <laughs> he says this, here's what it means for God to breathe forth his fire anger. I will deliver you into the hands of brutal men, brutal men, men skilled at destruction. When God breathes forth his fire anger, it turns out all he does is he turns people over. He delivers them. He withdraws his protection, and, and they are then made uh, uh, objects of, of, of judgment. In this case, it was the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, who came in and ruthlessly did terrible, terrible stuff. You'll find in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other authors, they attribute all of their violence to Yahweh. But there's other things that indicate that, in fact, it was Yahweh never lifted a finger. All the, thing, the only thing Yahweh did is with a grieving heart and hoping that Israel would eventually get it as he withdrew his protection and allowed them to fall under the consequences of their sin. Now, let me say this. Some people uh, would explain this dual way of speaking by saying, the reason why they attribute the same actions to Yahweh and then attribute the same actions to Nebuchadnezzar or some other violent agent is because God is orchestrating the whole thing. Uh, God controls everything. And this is all taking place according to God's pre-ordered plan. And so wicked people did it, but it was God who ordained that they do it. So you could refer to either God or the, or the wicked people. It might shock some of you to hear that I disagree with this interpretation. Uh, yeah, this is the Calvinist, typical Calvinist kind of interpretation of this dual way of speaking. But see, that would make God the author of evil. If God is causing an agent to be evil, then God is responsible for the evil. And you can pl- cry mystery all you want, and I'm just, <laughs> it doesn't help. Uh, God's causing evil. Sorry. Um, and I've asked people throughout the years, give me an analogy for what it would look like for, for God to cause evil in such a way that he's not responsible for the evil that he causes. Ah, I've never gotten any answer to that. So, and the God revealed on Calvary is not capable of evil. He's all light. In him there is no darkness, John says. Uh, and, and, and so that itself rules this interpretation out. Plus, if you read those narratives, trusting in the character of God, you'll notice things you otherwise wouldn't notice all over the place. Uh, and the way that they talk about these things, God's not manipulating anybody. He's not coercing anybody. He's just allowing people and powers to do what they want to do. In fact, sometimes what they do isn't quite what God wanted them to do. And he says that. 
Sometimes he punishes them for doing it. He's not causing this. He's allowing it. And he, he, sometimes he punishes them for being the kind of people who, who he could allow to do this. And sometimes they, they don't operate exactly as he anticipated. For example, in Zephaniah. This is after the Babylonian judgment. The Lord says, I'm angry with the nations that feel secure. Talking mainly about Babylon here. You're so secure, aren't you? Well, I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Yeah, I let you do what you wanted to do, but man, I didn't tell you to massacre everybody. You know, and, and so he turns around and then allows other nations to, to, to judge Babylon. Now, if God was causing all this, he could never say, you went too far. If God was causing this, they would go exactly as far as God wanted them to go. So the fact that they didn't do what God anticipated that they do shows that they're operating by their own free will. God is not a puppeteer, ever. He withdraws and with a grieving heart lets judgment happen. But he's not the one pulling all the strings. All right, so he's not causing this. Now, you might ask this question. That's a good one. Okay, that explains uh, the judgments that involve humans, uh, where the judgment takes place because God allows other humans to do what they want to do. Fine. But what about those portraits of God where there are no humans involved? Those, where violence is brought about and there wasn't any humans involved at all? What about those portraits where it looks like God is directly doing it? What do you do with those, Mr. Boyd? All right. Once again, I'll say it. All the wisdom of God is found in the cross. The cross is the wisdom of God, though it looks foolish to the world. It's the wisdom of God and the power of God. So let's go back to the cross and say, teach us, teach us, teach us. And what I found was this. I noticed that the cross, it wasn't just human beings that were involved in that judgment when God judged the sin of the world. Uh, that, that, that judgment was brought about also by the operation of the principalities and powers. Satan helped orchestrate that thing. Uh, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2 that if the, the powers of this world, referring to the spiritual authorities, if they had understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, for by that means they are being brought to nothing. God in his wisdom, I wish I could get into this right now, but I don't have time, but he used the, the self-induced evil stupidity of Satan and the powers who couldn't understand his wisdom because they don't understand love. He used that against them. So he uses evil to punish evil and sin to punish sin. And once you lock that in, you'll see it all over the place in the Bible. Uh, it's what God's always judged sin. But here I'm just pointing out that there were powers involved in this. Uh, in fact, the cross was the ultimate act of, of, of spiritual warfare. It culminated God's battle against Satan that's been going on throughout the ages. Uh, and, and so you don't understand the cross unless you frame it as an act of war. And since all Scripture is supposed to be pointing towards that, we should read Scripture Framing it in the context of war, knowing that there's other players that are involved other than human beings. And whenever we come upon violent portraits of God, where there aren't humans carrying out the violence, I submit to you, in my opinion, we should assume that the violence is being carried out by principalities and powers. Now, here's the thing that blew me away. That started as an act of faith. Because I trust that the God revealed on Calvary is nonviolent, and he is, that whenever violence is ascribed to God, it's done by other agents. And if the other agents aren't human, they've got to be angelic, falling, falling angels. I, I, I started by faith because I'm trusting that character. But as I read the Bible now with that assumption, ba-boom, I started finding it all over the place. Their own writings confirmed that God wasn't the other agent, even when there aren't any, other human, any human agents around. The example I just gave in Exodus 12 is a case in point. Uh, there... You know, it, 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 the author portrays it as though Yahweh was going to personally slaughter the firstborn, but it turns out, if you read on and you're looking for it, there's this destroyer that actually did the killing. God simply withdrew protection and 
no longer, you're now permitted the destroyer to, to uh, enter these houses. Uh, and you find a number of cases where in the same context, or at least in the same book, you'll find the other, the cosmic foe, uh, angelic power that carried out the, the, the violence uh, is named. But even in cases where, where that doesn't happen, I found that if you dig deeper and keep your eyes open, there's almost always other indications uh, that, that there's another uh, power involved. So I'm going to give two illustrations here in the next 15 minutes. Lord, give me succinctness. Two illustrations. There are two of the ones that I initially thought I'd have the hardest time explaining. Because on the surface, on that ugly surface, there's not any indication that there, is a, a, there are other agents uh, uh, involved. In fact, if you're looking just with the natural eye, you'll never learn about these other agents. Because you don't see them. All you see are the wicked humans crucifying Jesus. Uh, it's only because we know what else is going on that we know there's cosmic powers involved with this. Um, but so the, the, these are two cases where it looks like God did all the killing. But if you dig, 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 dig down and zoom out and look broader, you'll find confirmations that, in fact, he wasn't the one who did the killing at all. Okay, the first one. There's this judgment, famous judgment on this rebellion in the desert, the children of Israel out in the desert. Uh, you know, they're grumbling because they had it so good back in Egypt. You know, they ate caviar and escargot and, and had nice couches and, and watched television. But now that they're on the desert, they don't get any of that stuff. That's about how delusional they were. They kept on saying, oh, we got to eat so well back in Egypt. So they're grumbling like they are always doing. And then uh, some folks started saying, Moses is a bad leader. And so there's a, a mutiny rising up against Moses. And number 16, we, we, we read about this. This guy named Korah is leading this rebellion. And so he's going to try to overthrow Moses. That was a bad idea because a terrible judgment came on him. And here's what we read in number 16, verse 32. It says, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. Now, uh, it, it looks like that there's, God just opened up the earth and People fell into it, and they closed the earth, and that's, that's it. And the author clearly thinks that. He said, the, two verses earlier, says that the, the, watch what the Lord will do. So the earth opens its mouth. And God, being the kind of God he is, he influences as much towards truth as possible, but he accommodates as much as necessary. So he bears this image. And so in this passage, it looks like he's the one who opens the earth and, 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 and swallows these people. Now, just because I know who God really is, I'm trusting God like I trust my wife in that story I told. Uh, because of that, I, I will assume that there's other things going on. Something else is going on. That God didn't do this violence. And if I just patiently, I got this from Origen, a second century theologian who says, when you come upon you know, pictures that are unworthy of God, just patiently, patiently dig deeper. Look through the surface. Lean on the Holy Spirit. And you'll find a treasure of wisdom hidden behind the surface of the passage. And so I know something else must be going on. Um, well, at one point, I also noticed this, a passage I hadn't noticed before. It's, it, it's in 1 Corinthians. That's the thing. If you're trusting God's character, then and it, when you're reading the Bible, looking for something else going on, things will become significant that otherwise would have no significance. And you'll notice things you never noticed before. Here's a passage I never paid much attention to. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul's giving these lessons out of the Old Testament. And one of them is this. Don't be grumblers. Don't grumble like some of those folks in the Old Testament did. They were killed by a destroying angel. Hmm. Isn't that special? Because <laughs> there's no destroying angel in that text. Uh, most scholars think he's referring to number 16 since that was the most famous the account of the judging of the grumblers. But there's six other accounts where grumblers are judged. And none of them have a destroying angel. 
And some scholars refer that, say that the fact that Paul doesn't specify which grumblers, he's referring to all of them. So now we have biblical justification uh, for assuming that whenever God judged the grumblers, it was a destroying angel that did it, even though a destroying angel isn't mentioned. It seems to me that Paul here is, is he's just, since he knows God as he is in Jesus Christ, he knows that he didn't, God isn't the one who did this. Uh, it was a destroying agent. And if you could apply it to all the grumblers, why couldn't you apply it to every account of God judging people uh, where there wasn't humans involved? But so here we have this, this, Paul just gets this revelation that God wasn't the one who did it. Not only that, but as, as I was reading this narrative, I'm digging in the background, I'm you know, reading all these different kind of authors and, and these experts on the ancient Near East. Here's what I found. In the ancient Near East, you know, and we have to enter into their worldview, and it's really weird compared to ours. We, we think about principalities and powers, and those of us who believe in those things, um, you know, we, we know that it's Satan, and we have different ways of conceiving of them. In the Old Testament, the main way that they would refer to them, well, here's the thing. They didn't separate or distinguish between the natural and the supernatural the way we did. Uh, so we would say maybe, like, refer to an, an angel maybe using lightning to do something wicked, but they just refer, referred to the lightning being the, the demon. Uh, so lightning was a particular malicious god, and storms were a, 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 a malicious gods, and, and uh, uh, they would refer to you know, all, all kinds of natural disasters as, as, as wicked beings. But the main way that they referred to wicked beings was by referring to, and this is weird, but they, everyone in the ancient Near East believed that the earth was surrounded by water and, had, and was sitting on water and held up by pillars, and that there's waters above the firmament. And, and these waters, however, are not H2O, they are the principalities and powers. They're beings that want to devour the earth and want to devour people, and, and they're always trying to do that. But in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, they have their chief god, Baal or Marduk or whoever, uh, would be holding back these forces. And the biblical authors would take that and apply it to Yahweh. Yahweh holds back the, the waters. And so you read a lot about waters and the depths and, and, and things like that. And know that when you're, talking, when you're reading that material, if it's at all in a negative context or a judgment context, it's not talking about H2O, or at least not only about H2O. It's talking about the principalities and powers. That's just the way that they thought about these things. They also believed, and this is going to be a hard one, but <laughs> this is what they thought, that the earth was a principality and power. Uh, they referred to this earth monster. Sometimes it's called Eretz, which is just the Hebrew word for earth, but they saw it as this monster. Uh, the Canaanites believed that there was a, 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 a god of death, Mott was his name. And he lived just under the, the surface of the earth. And he had jaws that reached up to the surface and would sometimes devour people alive. You ever seen the movie Tremors? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, and so a lot of scholars, a lot of ancient Near Eastern and Old Testament scholars argue that, um, that when, when, when this author says the earth opened its mouth and swallowed these people, they would have taken that metaphorically. They would have taken it literally. There's, a, there's an earth monster here which confirms Paul's insight that there's a destroying angel, and it was the earth monster. And an indication that that's actually what was going on here is, look how the people respond once this happened. It says the, that the, uh, the people heard their cries as they were falling into the mouth of the earth, and all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. By the way, the earth is after us. They didn't say Yahweh's going to get us. They're afraid of the earth, because that's how they conceive of things. And it confirms Paul's insight that there was a destroying agent involved in this. Now, here's the thing. We can't believe that the earth is a monster. At least I have trouble. If you want to believe that, go ahead. But uh, no, I, I, I've, I've never once run away from the earth thinking it was going to swallow me. Um, so that was part of their ancient worldview. But what's not part of their ancient worldview is, is that there are, there are monsters, <laughs> that there are principalities and powers that are seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. 
And so the way that they conceive of, 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 of Satan was culturally conditioned, but it points to a reality that's confirmed in the cross. And so we are now in a position where we can see that even though this author didn't clearly distinguish between the earth monster and the Lord, because he attributes the, the violence to both, we can see that there's a big difference. And God judged sin here just as he did on Calvary. He, he, he bears the sin of this, sin, this author's sinful conception of him, thinking that he's capable of this kind of judgment. And so he takes on that appearance. But what really happened was he judged sin the same way he judged sin on Calvary, and that's that he withdrew. He's normally holding the forces of evil at bay, and now he withdraws and allows it to happen. And that's how these people fall under judgment. The last one I'll, I'll refer to was one I thought I'd have the hardest time explaining. That's the drowning of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Because that looks like just a straightforward account. I thought this is one I'll just have to ask people to take it on faith. Since we know what God's like, he didn't do the drowning. Um, but as a matter of fact, as I was reading this, uh, with this, with this trust going on, it actually turned out to be the passage that has the most confirmation that another agent was involved. I kid you not. It blew me away. It freaked me out it, 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 in a joyous kind of way. Uh, um, you know, the author clearly thinks that the Lord is capable of this because he, he, he attributes all the violence to him. In verse 3 of Exodus 15, it says, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. And it goes on. In fact, it literally says, the Lord, our Lord is a man of war. Uh, and, and it praises our, him for being so ferocious, so nasty, so ruthless. He didn't leave any of them alive. You know, he just crushed them all. Because that's what you do in the ancient Near East. But I know, because I know the character of God, I know that God didn't actually do that. A, another agent had to be involved. Well, the first thing I noticed was this. In, 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 uh, uh, at some point, I noticed verse 12. It says, you stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. Here's that earth monster again. Now, it, it's weird. You would have thought the water swallowed them, but the author says the earth did. And a lot of scholars argue that that's, this author is, is taking all that, the imagery of the earth monster, which always swallows people, and he's applying it to the sea. So he's kind of fusing the sea, which is also a, a way that they pictured evil, uh, and he's fusing with the earth. But here, the, his own narrative indicates that another cosmic agent was involved. What really surprised me, though, this was the most surprising thing, is that I found that this episode is referred to about a dozen other times in, in later biblical authors. And they almost all depict this crossing not as a battle between Yahweh and humans, but as a battle between Yahweh and evil, forces of evil, personified as the sea. The sea, it was the main way that they thought about evil, and now the Red Sea became for them this manifestation of evil. And God brought about this judgment by mastering the sea. And what they celebrate is his mastery over the sea, not the drowning of Pharaoh's army. I kid you not. So I'll give you a couple examples of this, because I know some of you are going, get out of here, no way, uh-uh. I want to watch. Psalm 77. The waters saw you. Stop. The waters saw you. <laughs> See, we're in a different world here, folks. We typically don't think waters have eyes, but they're not talking about H2O, though they are talking about the Red Sea. The, the, the Red Sea is here, manifest. they didn't separate supernatural from natural, so the Red Sea is this monster. The waters saw you, God, and the waters saw you and writhed. Uh, the very depths were convulsed. <laughs> Your path led through the sea. Stop again. The word sea in Hebrew is yam. Turns out, that Yom is also the proper name of this 
ancient Eastern deity that everyone believed in, uh, that, that was over chaos. And, and, and it also means sea, but it means like, uh, like, like watery abyss, chaos. Uh, an order devouring uh, monster. He hates order, always to bring chaos. So it may be sometimes, scholars argue that it's not clear whether they're talking about the Red Sea or Yom, or maybe both, because it's the same word. So your path led through Yom, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, in an ancient Eastern context, when they say the water saw you and they writhed and convulsed, they're not just talking poetry. They mean this. This is how they viewed evil. And the, the picture you get is Yahweh is leading Israel through the Red Sea like this. He's the captain. And, but you, you can't see his footsteps because he's invisible. So there's an invisible captain there. And as he's walking, the waters are going, oh, get away, get away. And so they're parting right in front of him. They're, they're backing up because like, they're afraid of, of, of Yahweh. And so he masters the sea, gets the children of Israel over the other side. He's holding his waters at bay, which is what he's always doing, because he's always holding forces of evil at bay. If he didn't, we'd all be devoured immediately. But then, to bring judgment, he stops doing that. See, with, with, with the world saturated by principalities and powers, God never needs to act violent. There's already plenty of violence to go around. In fact, for God to bring judgment, he doesn't have to do anything. For God to bring judgment, he has to stop doing something. And what he has to stop doing is mercifully protecting. And he does it with a grieving heart and with hope that we'll finally get it. But... Like we have to do with addicted loved ones, sometimes you have no other choice but to let them go. And now the monster does what the monster wants to do. That's, that's, that, that's one example. Another one. Psalm 74. I, I, it was you who split open the sea by your power. Sea is Yam. And here it almost certainly is referring to the Canaanite deity, because look, 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 look what it says next. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. Leviathan was a common ancient Near Eastern deity. Um, it literally means coily one. That's a way that they pictured this, this uh, a sea monster. Uh, sometimes it was the sea, sometimes it was Leviathan. The imagery overlaps with one another. But here, Yahweh is, is parting the Red Sea, and he's doing it by crushing the monster. The sea is the cosmic foe that God masters to bring his children to safety. And then in Isaiah, we read this. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, or cut Rahab in two? Rahab is another well-known ancient Near Eastern cosmic monster. And so the Red Sea is once again portrayed as this cosmic foe. And Yahweh's the one who cut, cut her in two, who pierced that monster through when he walked right through her. Was it not you who dried up the sea? Hello, Yam. The waters of the great deep who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over. It's God's victory over powers of evil. Uh, it, was there another agent involved in the, in, in, the, in, in the crossing of the Red Sea? Yeah, it was the Red Sea. And all these authors confirm that again and again and again. I could give you a lot of other examples. And so here we find that, that in a passage that otherwise looks like it's got no other agent other than God going on, the agent's right at the center stage. You only see it, though, if, number one, you're able to enter into their worldview, which is what the Bible interpretation is all about, enter into their strange world. Uh, which doesn't see a, a C as just being H2O. But also, you'll only see it if you're looking for it. And here's the real important point. Um, in my opinion, it comes down to, uh, who do you trust? See, if, if I really, it was when I stopped trying to defend all this stuff that I began to see all points to, to Christ. Because it was only when I, 
I got confident enough that God really does look exactly like he's revealed to be in the crucified Christ all the way down to the bottom. He, if you see me, you see the Father. No if and buts or exceptions. That's what God is really like. And if I really trust that, then I know he's not capable of slaughtering babies or telling his people to slaughter everyone except keep the virgins to enjoy for yourself and all that other mayhem. He's just not capable of that. So now when I come upon, but I still have to believe that all this is inspired because he's my Lord and he says it is. So I believe it's inspired, and yet he's not capable of that, which means something else is going on. And if I'm looking for something else going on, then I will find what else is going on. And the what else that's going on is exactly the what else that's going on with the cross. Because God's always been the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been stooping to meet people exactly where they're at, bearing their sin, and therefore taking on a likeness that resembles that sin. And so when they write about him, that's what they're going to write about, because God's not going to lobotomize them into seeing it differently. He patiently puts up with, with, with where they're at. So if I trust the cross uh, and, and, and that God is beautiful all the way down to his very essence, then now I will find that beauty when I'm reading even the most ugliest passages of the Bible. But see, and that's what the church was doing for the first three centuries, more or less. But then at some point, people stopped trusting that. And maybe God is capable of genocide and of ordering killed little boys and every girl that slept with a man but spare the virgins and all the other heinous things that happen there. Maybe God's capable of that. If you think God is capable of that, well then, you're not looking for anything else going on. What you see is what you get. In other words, you, you've just reduced yourself to the, to the same perspective as the, the ancient Near Eastern people. Jesus isn't going to benefit you a bit unless you're willing to trust him. If you think he's capable of this, then this, is, this will just confirm your belief. Oh, look, yeah, God did, you know. And there are people who get off on that, just like the people of the ancient Near East did. Oh, look, God killed all those people, wicked people. Oh, he's just ruthless. I don't get off on that. And the, the more I see the nonviolence in Jesus and the nonviolent revelation of God, the, the more disturbing this is. Uh, but now if I just keep on trusting now, if I'm not going to trust what they, how, the way they saw God, because they only saw glimpses, I got the real deal. Then now I'll see how, in fact, they point to the cross. All of them beautiful. These, I'll end with this. These passages, which used to be the biggest obstacle to me believing in the Bible, I believed it on, on obedience, on sure obedience, but I, man, those pictures, they get more and more disturbing the more beautiful you see God in Jesus Christ. It used to be the biggest obstacle. Now, the way that they bear witness to the cross, honestly, to me, it's, it's like one of the greatest proofs. It's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. Uh, and and it's, it's beautiful. It, it, they're, they're historical testaments that God's always been doing what he did on the cross. He's always been showing off his beauty by looking terribly ugly. <laughs> hallelujah, hallelujah. Uh, okay, folks, we just stand. Chew on that. Next week, uh, we'll get Bruxy's perspective on this and have a Q&A. Whether you agree with this or not, I, I want to encourage you to, to, to one thing. What is, that's just my opinion. But what I hope is not just opinion is that God really does look as beautiful as he's revealed to be in Jesus Christ. Full stop. Full stop. Don't go anywhere else. If you see me, you see the Father. Don't look anywhere else. Because your, only, your love relationship with God will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. And your life transformation will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. And God wants us to look beautiful. So we've got to trust that he's beautiful. Amen? Amen? Go out and be beautiful, you guys. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Hey, you guys. Remember about 40 minutes ago or so, I, I, I told you about the Sustain campaign? Yeah, I, I would have forgot it too. Uh, don't worry about it. But I'm just here to remind you that uh, we really could use your support. Uh, and so I encourage you to get on board with this. Just go to whchurch.org and uh, commit to a regular giving schedule of any amount. I uh, deeply appreciate you guys. God bless you guys. Love pouring into your life and love partnering with you in ministry. Take care.